From my home office, on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and with me is our producer, Kate Berry. Hello. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But as an ethicist, I can help you see that even if you have nothing to hide, you still might have reason to be worried. And if you've liked what you've been hearing and want to help us out, The best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider doing that. So, Kate, when you and I were talking a little bit ago, coming up with episode ideas, we were combing through the headlines and we saw something that was pretty interesting and uh, it seems like it's starting to possibly become a little bit more prevalent. That would make the basis for a good case, right? Yeah. We were both reading articles about Amazon potentially spying on its employees, both in the warehouses to monitor their productivity, but also maybe monitoring any uh, union unionizing. That's right. And then um, we started digging and didn't it seem like some organizations, even smaller ones, are exploring uh, spying on their employees or making their employees do things in order to make sure they're actually doing work at home amidst COVID-19? Yeah, that seemed to be the biggest new reach was that people at home are having their employers watch them through. I've I've heard some stories about people just needing to be on Zoom the entire workday so that their employer can always see them. That's actually kind of low tech compared to some of the other things that can record keystrokes. Or if you're away from your computer for five minutes, realizes that you're not working and says you have 60 seconds to get back to work. Wow, that's pretty big brother. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> well, let's 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 get to work. Good. Where do we start with this? So I think the umbrella of this episode is spying and privacy, but can we get a more concrete case? Yeah. So let's imagine, um, I mean, there are a lot of ways you could do this, but let's imagine you've got someone who is an employee, uh, maybe in IT, and the boss approaches them and says, hey, I've been looking at all these interesting creative ways that Companies are trying to make sure that people working from home are really working. And I'd like your assistance in, you know, researching some of these and maybe maybe installing one of these like keystroke loggers. And are there ways we can tap into their webcam? And obviously the IT guy or girl might be sort of like, hey, I'm not too comfortable with this, but they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Boss really wants some privacy invasion kinds of things. They're not too comfortable with it. And they're sort of like, what the heck do you do in this situation? Yeah, I don't know what I would do. But I know that I wouldn't want the IT person that works at Prindle to spy on me. I think the thing you said before about the general issue being this issue of privacy is the real meat of the issue here. And so I think there are a few things or a few questions we're going to want to dig into to make sense of this case. And and the first one is just what is privacy? That's something we're going to want to get clear on. I think we should also talk about how important is it. I think to some folks, it's really, really important, but also some of the younger generations, your millennials, your Gen Zs, because they live so openly online, it's maybe a value that is becoming less valuable over time, or at least, or it seems to be for them. 
Yeah, I do get the sense that people are a little bit more blasé about privacy. And one of my pet peeves in conversations about privacy are when people say, well, look, what's the big deal? If you don't have anything bad to hide, then you shouldn't be worried. I happen to think there are loads of reasons to think that there is something valuable about privacy that go beyond some of the more simplistic things that I think people think about when they think about privacy. So yeah, we need to talk about what is valuable about privacy. And then the thing I'm interested in is even if it is valuable, where do we get this idea that we have a right to privacy, right? That like, where is that insured us or when like where do we get that idea that that's something that we should all have all right so there are three things that i think are going to help us make sense of this case that we should dig into and then we can ask the question you know what's so bad about or not so bad about an employer trying to do something like this with their employees so the first one what is privacy there are a lot of different senses of the word privacy but usually when people talk about a right to privacy they mean this technical thing called informational privacy. And that just means you have this, you have informational privacy when you have control over what facts are known about you. That's it. You just, you control what's known about you. And if you, if you have control over what's known about you, then that's the sense of privacy that I think is at issue here. So we can get that out of the way. That's what we mean when we talk about privacy. So what about the value of privacy? Why do we think it's a good thing? Why is it something that people try to keep for themselves? Well, there are all sorts of reasons someone might want to keep facts not known about them that have nothing to do with being lazy at work or being a nefarious bad guy, embezzling from the company. You know, one simple one is there are bad actors out there. And sometimes when information about you is known that they happen to not like, your safety is in jeopardy. And so these are perfectly okay things for you to be doing, perfectly okay ways for you to be, but some people don't like the way you are. And in the internet age, that's even more dangerous for some people. If someone's gender identity or someone's sexual orientation was distasteful to their employer, they might want to keep it under wraps. And that's nothing wrong with them. It's but it might be something wrong with the the person who's looking for that info. That's right. And I mean, we surely don't think at least in most cases, we don't think there's anything wrong with a, an employee working on a document and having like an instant message thing over on the side where they're messaging back and forth with their friends. And if you've got like a keystroke logger, the conversation with their friends is going to get logged right alongside the work they're doing. They could forget about the program or, you know, they could inadvertently reveal something. Once those keystrokes are logged, they don't, they don't go away. And these could be things that aren't bad, nothing wrong with them. But uh, if that information got into the wrong hands, that could be potentially dangerous for the person. And my employer doesn't need to know what I thought about the last episode of The Great British Baking Show. <laughs> um, I think there are other important uh, goods to be thinking about when we think about privacy. And one of them has to do with this idea of, of human dignity or, or autonomy. And, and, and the, the basic idea here is there are all sorts of ways in which keeping information to yourself about yourself gives you the freedom to live out your life in the way that you want to live out your life. I think we have this popular notion of freedom and liberty that as long as someone isn't like physically restraining you, 
you are perfectly free to do whatever you want. And that's just, that's just an implausible notion of autonomy. I don't think there's an ethicist out there who takes seriously the idea that as long as you're not being held down physically, you're free, right? And so sometimes people will not act in the ways they f- want to act if facts are known about them. So here, here's an interesting case. And this is also, incidentally, a reason to be concerned about other people's privacy, even when you're not concerned about your own. Uh, there was a case where uh, a woman had taken great lengths to cloak where she was at any given time because she had an abusive ex-partner. And uh, it just so happened that she was at a party and someone else posted a picture of a group and she was in that group and she got tagged in that group. The ex was friends with the person who posted the photo. And so the ex now knows where that person is and was able to track her down. If you think about it, this is a kind of lack of privacy that would be freedom inhibiting. If this person was not able to disguise or cloak where they were, they would not feel free to leave the house. And I think there'd be a really important sense in which they did not have the autonomy to live out their life the way they wanted to live. So that that's a good, that's a good example in how keeping secrets about yourself is actually liberating and having those secrets disclosed is liberty or freedom depriving. Well, those are pretty big ones, but are there other reasons why people care so much about their privacy? Let's get onto the positive side of relationships. We just talked about a a negative one. You know, privacy is actually, uh, there are a lot of philosophers out there, a lot of ethicists out there who, who note that privacy and, and secrets about ourself are very important to social relationships. Uh, they're important for intimacy and even uh, important for just ordinary everyday friendships. I can give you a few examples. So there are things about ourselves that uh, we're not proud of. There are things about ourselves that we're embarrassed by. But we still want to have relationships with people who, who know those things about us. Even though we're not proud of them or if we're embarrassed by them, we want to walk through life with people who... Who know us, who know the real us, right? Yeah, who know us, who know the real us. And, uh, but we don't want to do that with everybody. We don't do it with the whole world. Sure. And this is, the, this is one of the things that is, you might think is almost a constitutive feature of intimacy, right? You might think the closest love of your life, they know it all, right? Like, and, and that's, that's part of even just signaling how much you trust them, how much you love them, that you are willing to have them be one of the ones who knows all this about you. And if these things get out, if they get out on the internet and the internet mob has their way with you, it's like you just, you, you don't have that. You, you've lost that. I hadn't thought of it that way, that without secrets, there might not be a very substantial way to signal to your loved ones that you're close to them. That, I mean, there are, there are other ways, of course, to demonstrate it, but like, that's a really weighty one that it's like, hey, I've never told anyone this before, or this is something that not very many people know about me, but, and that's like how you signal how close you are to them. 
Absolutely. And so there, it's not only that these secrets function to make intimacy possible, they function to make friendships possible. So you get lots and lots of reasons, I think, to think that privacy is something we should value and, and take more seriously. You mentioned that privacy also protects you from the mob. I imagine you mean online? Yeah. And in fact, not only does it protect you from the mob, but the fact that there is an internet mob is perhaps a reason to be even more concerned about privacy. Because once it's out there on the internet, it doesn't go away. Yeah. They're even talking about right to be forgotten laws in the European Union, uh, various countries in the European Union. What is that? Before the internet, uh, if you screwed up, uh, it would come out in the paper uh, but, you know, three, six, 12 months go by. Most of the people who read the paper will have forgotten about it. Uh, you could probably move to another town and uh, that embarrassing thing you did, no one in that town has even read that paper. And so, you know, it, it's easy to recover from your mistakes before the internet. And you might only be subject to the wrath of the people whom you wronged, right? Right. Now you're subject to the wrath of the internet, and since it's always out there, the right-to-be-forgotten laws are designed to make things go away that you would like to go away after a period of time. It's like a statute of limitations on that information being easily accessible. Not only are you subject to the internet mob now for the dumb thing you did, 10 years from now, when people have forgotten about you and they've forgotten about your thing and they Google your name, Suddenly it's news again, and you're subject to the internet mob all over for a thing you did 10 years ago. Right. So I think the internet, while it's eroding our privacy, gives us even more reason to be concerned about privacy. So we've listed a bunch of things that demonstrate why we should care about privacy, but where do we get this idea that we have the right to privacy? Where's that enshrined? You know, that's a good question, too. You know, just because something is valuable doesn't automatically mean you have a right to it. But a couple of the things that came up in the conversation about value do actually, I think, serve as a basis for a reason to think that there's at least some right that we have to privacy, at least at first glance, right? Maybe it can be overridden, but one of them goes back to that idea of autonomy and dignity, most of us tend to think that if we have a right to anything, we have a right to just freely live out our lives in the way we want to, so long as we're not harming others. And if you take seriously the idea that uh, facts known about you could impede on your ability to, to freely live out your life, then right there you have a, a pretty good argument, I think, that there's at least some kind of right to privacy. That, and that goes for the, the intimacy and social relationships, right? Those are not auxiliary goods like, you know, eating candy or, you know, going on vacation or in, enjoying certain kinds of luxuries, right? The idea that um, everyone should be able to pursue a, an intimate relationship with someone whom they love and, and have meaningful friendships, it's, it's a core part of who we are, right? We're social creatures. Anything that gets in the way of that, I think most people reasonably think they, they have a claim. They have a, they have a claim to the things that help them have those relationships. Privacy is one of those things. 
So most of these examples seem to apply to individuals and their private relationships. Does that change at all when you put them in a workplace setting? Can they still assume the same rights to privacy and dignity and secrecy that an individual on their own sort of in a vacuum can expect? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think there are some reasons that an employer might appeal to, uh, to think that there are going to be some limits on privacy rights. Uh, just like there are limits on free speech rights, right? We have a, we think we have a right to free speech, but that doesn't mean when you're in the boardroom or when you're in the meeting, you just get to open up your mouth and start, you know, jabbering away when someone else is speaking, right? Like, there there are limits to that. One way in which we talk about a limitation on privacy rights is when people serve in a public role, like a politician, right? The superintendent of a public school board. You know, there are certain things that you no longer get to keep private. Like we might want to know if that superintendent sends their own kids to public or private school. Exactly. That's that's a really good case in point. Or we might want to know where someone is getting their campaign donations from, right? Those, those kinds of things. They might try to keep some of that stuff secret, but once it's discovered, they don't get to scream privacy rights and like prevent people from spreading the information. Um, once it's out, it's out. You know, and an employer might say, look, we're, we're an organization that is not dissimilar from, you know, the state in the sense that we've brought you in, you're serving in an official role for this organization. And since you are serving in an official role for this organization, things, information that's relevant to the good of this organization are fair game for us to expect to know. Like example, if you're sitting there at your computer and the supervisor walks in and says, uh, hey, uh, what are you working on? I don't know that you get to just say, none of your business. <laughs> or at least it wouldn't be a surprise if you didn't work there very long, if that was your answer. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, of course it's of course it's the business of the organization to know what work you're doing. So that they, they might appeal to something like that. So is that a good analogy then that like the public gets to hold politicians and policymakers accountable that uh, your boss or your manager would get to do the same to you? Well, you know, I don't know. I think, I mean, I do think there are going to be ways in which this breaks down. Um, We think we have a right to know certain things about what our politicians are doing, but that doesn't mean we get to put a camera in their house and watch their every movement uh, all all day long, 24-7. Right. I mean, the kind of stuff that's being suggested here is the kind of stuff that we would think even politicians have a little bit of uh, room to breathe and be out of the public eye. I mean, I think the analogy breaks down in other ways, too, right? With being a public servant, you're not required to take on the role of a public servant. You don't need to do that to survive. But in this day and age... The way we've decided to distribute money to people is they have to get a job. You, you need a job to survive. So you're less, you're less free. You could choose to be a politician, but you can't really choose whether or not you have a job. Right, exactly. And, um, and you might say, well, you're free to leave and go to another organization. But if this were the norm, if all organizations were invading your privacy, there's no real freedom to leave. The whole system is set up so that you don't have privacy. And so your only alternative to divulging all this information about yourself would be to not have a job. And so that's the analogy breaks down there. 
it seems like kind of a weird reversal to me that you'd have bosses or managers, like organizational leadership saying, in this analogy, we're the public and it's our workers that are the government, that that seems like not quite to track. I mean, surely there are a lot of other bad things that could potentially happen when employers take this track of, of spying on their employees. It sure doesn't sound good, but I, I want to check my, my um, gut instinct. So what are some other additional harms? Well, I don't know. I mean, the information that you're gathering leaking, like how are you storing this information? You know, what if it leaks? What kind of harm could happen? You know, you could, you could divulge something about someone that could subject them to that internet mob. Um, and, you know, the other thing is you could reveal things about people that you don't think are going to be big deals, even if they leak. But that information that leaked in conjunction with other information that someone might have out there about themselves could reveal something. Or there could be some kind of data mining that reveals something uh, about your employees. There's this example where a dad calls up Target because they sent his daughter, who was 16 years old at the time, a, a pamphlet of coupons. And it was all about, you know, baby stuff, diapers, wipes, baby food. And the dad called up real angry, like, what the heck are you sending my daughter all this stuff about, you know, getting pregnant? Um, she's only 16. And the, the daughter heard the dad on the phone and she's like, um, dad, we, we have to talk. And it turns out the daughter was in fact pregnant. And there was this VP at Target who figured out that he could predict the due date of someone just based on what they were purchasing and when they were purchasing it. So, you know, it starts out with the pregnancy test. Right. They bought the pregnancy test here and, you know, they have all this data on all the pregnancy tests. Then it starts out with the then next is the zinc supplements. And there you go. Once you start the zinc supplements, you know that person has just discovered that they're pregnant. And then it, all, all the other purchases that get made and they could figure this out. And then what Target would do is once someone had uh, engaged in a purchasing set of patterns that signaled pregnant, they would send custom coupons for the next thing that they would need to buy in the pregnancy cycle, or the next thing that was most common to buy in the pregnancy cycle. And so Target, through this data mining program, had basically inadvertently revealed to someone that their daughter was pregnant. Oh, I'm speechless. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, there's this new concept called uh, inferential privacy. That's a, a kind of a hot topic uh, amongst uh, ethicists who work on privacy right now. And roughly the idea is there's, there's information about what is known about you. But some people are talking about, do you have a right for there to be restrictions on what can be inferred about you? You know, having machines crunch all these numbers and spit out accurate predictions about you that you didn't intentionally reveal. It was just a computer was smart enough to put the dots together and connect the pieces to discover something about you that no human being could have discovered on their own. And it's another reason not to be blase about privacy because now we've reached an age where we don't even know what bits of data are out there about us that could reveal other 
deeper things about us that we wouldn't want people to know. Right. We're always dropping breadcrumbs and we may not see what they reveal, but with enough data and with enough of a sort of pulled back view, it might be actually quite revealing. And it doesn't take much data to reveal things about you. You know, if you, you know, you know all those forms where you fill out your name, your age, your birth date, your gender, and your zip code, that probably narrows it down to you in most cases, right? How many people in Greencastle were born on a certain date or a certain age uh, and are of a certain gender? Technology, uh, it, it's eroding our privacy, but it's also giving us significant reasons to care quite a bit more about it. I hate that it's under attack and harder than ever to protect, but also more important than ever to protect. Yep. Well, Andy, what would you suggest to our IT person who feels like they object to um, being asked to spy on their coworkers, but are being asked by their boss? I think they have to deal with the fact that the, the boss is probably in this camp of privacy isn't that important. And what's the big deal? We are only uh, looking at X, Y, and Z at this time or something like that. And I think just being equipped to talk about the value of privacy. I mean, I wanted to go to the value of privacy just to give you know anybody in this situation some tools, right? If you're confronted with someone who said, what's the big deal? Privacy is not important. There is a whole bunch to be said about the importance of privacy. And I hope this episode gives people some talking points on how to talk about that. And, you know, yes, at the end of the day, there's got to be some give and take. Organizations are entitled to a little bit of information, but there has to be a line to be drawn somewhere. And the way you motivate the idea that there has to be a line drawn somewhere is knowing how to talk about the value of privacy, knowing how to talk about what historically has been used to argue that people do have some kind of fundamental right to privacy. And so I hope that if you're in a situation like this IT person, I hope you can take what we talked about in this episode and it gives you the resources to talk about that with someone in your organization who doesn't seem to be taking privacy as seriously as they should. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Berry. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me at katherineberry at depa.edu and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. We hope you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work. If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.